millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Irish Examiner's end-of-year political assessment podcast. I'm Mick Clifford and I'm joined by the newspaper's political team to run the rule over how the ministers in the executive have performed since the government was formed last June. Joining me to give their considered views are political editor Danny McConnell and political correspondents Elaine Lachlan, Aoife Moore and Paul Hosford. Danny, before we start sticking the boot in and patting backs, no doubt, would you just briefly set out the context in which this government has been operating for the last six months or so? Sure, Mick. So, I mean, this is, by any stretch of the imagination, a historic coalition coming to power at a time of a, a pandemic. Um, it, it has brought together the two old civil war enemies of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. The Green Party are in there as, as the third wheel. So you have this tripartite government, um, essentially, and, you know, a, a key to all of that, as was the operation of that government, was this idea of a parity of esteem between the two big parties. Now, you know, while they have performed well on certain issues in terms of battling the pandemic in, in certain areas, they have shown a remarkable ability uh, of shooting themselves in the foot on, on, on almost a weekly basis. And, you know, um, it's been a, a term of office, you know, riven with drama, resignations, controversies, um, and, and one that really, you know, it is fitting for the sort of unprecedented times that we've been living in this year. The government has certainly lived up to its part of the bargain and given us plenty of fodder to, uh, to assess, criticise, and ultimately condemn as well at the same time. Great, yeah. And as I say, we'll go through your various markings and I will make a tiny little contribution as a lay journalist, I suppose you might call me, if, if there is such a thing, a lay journalist. But anyway, we'll start with Taoiseach Michal Martin. Uh, Elaine Lachlan, Elaine, what scores on the board for the Taoiseach? Yes, well, the Taoiseach has performed as well as you would anticipate in a, a global pandemic, he really, really wanted this job. He's been looking over from the opposition um, for almost a decade at the seat that both Leo Varadkar and Enda Kenny were in. And he, he really, really wanted that. But then when he got it, he almost didn't know what to do with it at the start, certainly. Um, he was a bit baffled. There was a lot of problems, a lot of bumps along the road, not to mention two cabinet ministers resigning over the summer. So it was almost like the child that got the toy but didn't know how to play with it. Um, but since then, I think he has made strides as uh, the doll has progressed he certainly has come into himself and we see that with a number of State of the Nation addresses on COVID. He's become stronger with each of those and I feel like he's he's probably settled into the role now. He does have a considerable amount of work to do though next year and to make sure that his party is behind him and I think it'll be his party that'll be the, the significant um, or the, the serious issues that he has to confront in 2021. What score would you give him, Elaine? I think I gave him an eight. I think you gave him a seven. <laughs> oh, did I? Okay, I'm marketing higher Right, up here. It, it, it just shows, yeah, it, 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 it can go up. Danny, um, that issue Elaine mentioned about uh, the parliamentary party, that's kind of more significant with this Taoiseach than it might have been with others. 
It is, and he's a leader who has never really been loved by his party. He's been tolerated uh, for a long period. Um, and, you know, I suppose our, our reports from the weekly parliamentary party meeting have shown that, you know, he's been getting it in the neck repeatedly from, you know, not in just, say, I suppose, a, a, the, the typical bunch of naysayers. There have been a lot of, com- you know, concerns around communication, his, uh, his, I suppose, accessibility to the backbenches, stances he has taken on, on various issues. And also as well, there's the you know, perception that Leo Varadkar has been kind of outsmarting him and outdancing him, both on social media but also in terms of gazumping his position as Taoiseach. So uh, I haven't been as generous as Elaine in, in terms of my award. I give him actually a solid enough 5 out of 10. Uh, but I think the big question mark is whether or not uh, he can reassert his control of the narrative, not only over the government, but of his own party, because there are mutterings afoot as to his leadership and his position. Um, and should they continue to languish in the polls into kind of Easter time of next year, I think his position will come under serious pressure and the, the spectre of Jim O'Callaghan looms very large in the in the wings. One to watch for the coming year, no doubt. Okay, we move on to the Tarnished Leo Varadkar. Aoife, um, he's made a few gaffes along the way, which I suppose weren't typical of the man, really, were they? Yeah, it's it's quite um, stunning how far he's fallen from, you know, the Taoiseach that led us through the first instances of the pandemic and made that now historic speech and the steps in Washington about COVID and how he was going to close the schools. I think it stands in stark contrast um, to the man we see now who doesn't, quite clearly doesn't like uh, playing number two and isn't very good at it. I think it's hard to kind of remove Leo Varadkar, the person and the Tanish from Leo Varadkar, the minister. As a minister, you know, he's been quite nondescript other than a few, you know, photo ops. And a pretty watery report on insurance. There isn't really much you could say about his tenure as minister. However, as the person, you know, we've had Leo trying to undermine Me Hall announcing things on social media before the Tisha can get the chance to do it himself on TV. He's kind of fallen under this issue around petty politicking. He seems obsessed with Sinn Fein and he lets Sinn Fein control the narrative. And then we find that he leaked a confidential document when he was. Taoiseach and you know by anybody's stretch he wouldn't be in the job he's in now if he wasn't the leader of Fine Gael because if you look at Dara Kaliri and the likes of other people who had to resign this year the only reason he's still in his job is because he's the leader of Fine Gael. And you've been a bit parsimonious in your uh, rating for him I think Aoife have you? I gave him a two and it was and that was me being very kind. (laughs) (laughs) Paul um that point, there are two Leo Varadkars there, really, too, in terms of his political persona, aren't there? Absolutely, Mick. And like Eva said, there's the Leo Varadkar who we have to remember that when the, the pandemic hit, Fine Gael had come out of a, a, a general election where they were they'd taken a beating, and Leo wasn't particularly well thought of publicly. There, there was a lot of kind of animosity towards him, particularly in his brand as we went into the pandemic and his handling and, and what kind of became him and Simon Harris and Tony Hulahan managing this pandemic really saw Fine Gael bounce back and find their own feet a couple of months after the, the general election. And it was that Leo Varadkar that people kind of rallied behind. But like you like you've said, I don't think he's settled into the, the number two role particularly well. He gets involved in, in all kinds of really petty scrapes with 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 Sinn Fein. He he often seems very rattled by by Mary Lou McDonald in the doll in a way that Michal Martin, I think, has done a little bit better with uh, tends to kind of hit Sinn Fein more on policy than on the North or on, you know, 
or past grievances or, or anything that's gone on in the past. And then you look at the take up of, of the COVID-19 uh, supports, you know, you look at things like some of them have had really, really dismal uptakes. The, the COVID-19 loan phase one and two between them, 20, the value of actual approvals is about 22 million. So if you're if you're taking Leo Varadkar as the tarnished Leo Varadkar as the leader of Fine Gael and Leo Varadkar as the minister since uh, this government came came to power in late June, it hasn't been a great performance. It hasn't been the performance of Leo Varadkar from March to to I suppose the middle of June. Out of ten, Paul, I gave him a four. Okay, and the, the third party leader in the government, of course, is Eamon Ryan, also transport minister. Um, Danny. This is second time around. I mean, has the uh, experience stood to his advantage so far, in your opinion? There's no sign that it has, Mick. I mean, Eamon Ryan went into government with, you know, acrimony and with sort of a lot of heat from his own, you know, backbenches and from his own sort of uh, ranks of chief lieutenants. I mean, his own deputy leader, Catherine Martin, not only challenged him for the leadership, but also opposed the idea of going into government in the first place, uh, having been their, their chief negotiator. You know, the CETA row this week has just shown that he's not in control of his party. You know, he's like, I mean, this was an issue that he either failed to see uh, or address quickly enough um, or just, you know, was not in a position to kind of enforce his view of the world over over his own party. CETA, just to point out, CETA being the trade deal between the EU and Canada, it's pretty contentious, particularly among Green Party members. Yeah, um, and ultimately, you know, you know, if this is just the Green Party in isolation standing in opposition, it, it'd be far less important. The fact, though, you know, government business is now being delayed and interfered with because of his inability to essentially control his party. Uh, I think he's had a pretty dismal um, term, you know, typified by the fact he fell asleep in the doll chamber during a vote, you know. Um, and, you know, the internal recriminations within the Green Party continue at large. So I've given Eamon Ryan a, a mere three out of ten. Aoife, you've been even less generous. You've given him a two out of ten. Yeah, um, for me, other than the fact that he fell asleep in the doll, um, and I think that tells you a lot about Eamon Ryan in general, but I think the climate bill, you know, climate is the reason that Eamon Ryan campaigned so hard to go into government with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And he said, you know, the climate emergency is, is the reason that we need to do this, even if we have to hold our nose to do it. The climate bill was described by his own members of his own party that it was worse than Richard Britton's. And they had insult to injury then. It was, they tried to rush it through the Oireachtas and it was only through, you know, committee pushback that it ended up getting proper scrutiny. So I find it mind-boggling that he used the climate emergency to get under government and then produced a worse bill than Fianna Gael. Um, so I don't actually believe it's about climate at all. I think Eamon Ryan just enjoyed being in government and I don't think any of the Greens' um, climate goals are going to be met because they're already being watered down now. So I gave him two out of ten. Okay, the only thing I'd say about falling asleep is uh, at, at the outset of the doll, I think it might have been the only time I was in the convention centre, but those seats there, they're lovely. Like you, you, I could easily... <laughs> I could easily understand somebody not off, particularly during some kind of a boring debate, but that's neither here nor there. Right, we're moving on to Simon Coveney, Foreign Affairs. Elaine... He's been sure-footed, in your opinion. He really has. Um, and we see it on Brexit, where he was over in Brussels and had numerous chats with Michel Barnier um, and even has been in, in Paris in, in recent weeks as well to talk to his counterparts over there. I think 
He really is listened to uh, when he speaks in Europe and that is because he is put in the hard graft and he does, you know, especially in Ireland, we see him as, you know, boring Simon, you know, uh, perhaps maybe it's, it's one of the reasons why Eamon Ryan fell asleep that he, he may have been listening to, to Simon Coveney. You know, he does have that, but he is a solid figure. He's level-headed. He's just epitomises common sense. And that's really what we need, especially when we're talking about Brexit. Now, unfortunately, you know, he's only one small player and, and the negotiations are between the EU and the UK. So his ability there is limited, but it's certainly his voice has been listened to and is considered, um, you know, it carries weight in Europe. And then also he played a blinder when he came into the doll and announced that, you know, he and his officials had been working for many weeks on this and they managed to get it over the line with plenty of time as kids were sending their letters to Santa to tell us all that Santa was deemed, you know, an essential worker and he wouldn't be stopped. There would be no checkpoints when he comes in and out of Irish airspace on Christmas Eve. Ah, shameless opportunism, that's all that was. Well, (laughs) it may or may not be, but I know that plenty of teachers, uh, primary school teachers, played that for their students um, and children up and down the country and it was really warmly welcomed both in classrooms and at home with parents. And it's the kind of message that we really need this year, a bit of compassion um, and a bit of, I don't want to say joy, but something a bit lighthearted. So he, he has that seriousness and then the lighthearted side. I think he's a bit too thin and a bit too fit looking to make it a Santa, but we, we, we'll, we'll give him a pass <laughs> on that one. Paul, I suppose in some ways... He's tailor-made for the role of Foreign Affairs Minister. Yeah, he's a, he's a serious man for serious times, Mick. He, he's a guy who just has a bit of gravity about him. Uh, people, like Elaine said, people listen when he talks. But he, he just comes across, as, uh, uh, particularly with the Brexit issue, as a guy who is on top of his brief. He understands the details of, of what he's getting into, but he understands the politics of it as well. Uh, I, I think it's very rare, you know, Danny's been, been covering the, the, the doll a, a good bit longer than me, but I... I can't think of a, a time where Simon Coveney accidentally let something slip or said something out of turn where you know it became an issue for days on end and that that's the kind of speaker publicly and in the media that you need at a time like this he's very level-headed but he's always very keen to to put across that he's fighting for Irish interests in the Brexit talks but he's a European as well um, committed to the to the European project, and I think he, he just fits that role really well. And when when we were sitting down to to you know do our own cabinets and our own cabinet projections in June, it it did seem like there was very few other places you would have put Simon Coveney in this year. Grandpa, and you gave him, I think it was a seven out of ten, which is pretty solid mark as well. No, the third. When I just think of it, the third TD from Cork South Central in our list here after, of course, Mial Martin and Simon Coveney is Michael McGrath, public expenditure. Aoife, um, cool-headed kind of operator. Yeah, so um, I think everyone would agree that Michael McGrath is very cool-headed, uh, very level-headed. He doesn't really get into, you know, the kind of petty politicking that we see from all our um, ministers and all our TDs, however... We saw in the budget, even though it was this historic budget worth masses amounts of money that have never um, been paid out before, it was quite clear from the budget that Fine Gael didn't compromise on things that Fine Gael didn't want to compromise on. And it kind of gave a lot of people the feeling that Michael McGrath is always going to be outmaneuvered by Pascal Donoghue if he doesn't take a stronger hand. And 
I think the concern most people would have now is after the pandemic and as we had head into a recession, they would want someone to kind of put the brakes on on Fine Gael's worst instincts as it was. And I think for as calm and reasonable as he is, sometimes uh, I think especially with the way Fina Fall are heading in the polls at the minute, it might be worth Michael McGrath taking a stronger hand so that at least they can separate themselves from Fine Gael when it comes down to the ballot box and they can say, well, Fine Gael wanted to do this and we wanted to do that. Okay, and you gave him a 5 out of 10. Elaine, um, that point also what strikes me, he was involved in the government formation talks. While there is some rustling in the long grass about Michal Martin's leadership, much of it focuses on Jim O'Callum, but is is Michael McGrath someone who to be discounted in that respect? I think he is, and it's purely a geographical matter for Michael McGrath. And I think he realizes that himself. That unfortunately, politics is fickle in that sense that you have to have an even spread of TDs and ministers. And we even saw it at the start of this government, where there was a, a row over how many ministers were appointed that came from west of the Shannon. Um, and Michael McGrath is in the same constituency as Michal Martin. So many people just simply discount him, even though he probably would be the most capable uh, person to take over that position. Jim O'Callaghan's name is is someone is a name that's bandied about a lot, but he's only been in the doll a short amount of time. This is his, his second run at it. Um, and, and doesn't have a senior portfolio and hasn't certainly doesn't have uh, the level of expertise um, or experience that Michael McGrath has. But I think he he will miss out just on the basis of um, the constituency that he comes from and and uh, and geography. Having said that, I did I did score him quite highly. I scored him an eight out of ten. <laughs> Purely because we, as journalists, had absolutely nothing really to talk about ahead of the budget this year because there was no rouse, there was no shouting, there was no fighting. Everybody seemed to go into a room with Michael McGrath and come out happy. Um, now, that came down to obviously the amount of money that he had to spend this year and maybe expectations as well were lowered because we were in the midst of a pandemic. But at the same time, he seemed to handle, you know, not only his own party, but you know, civil war enemies, Fine Gael and the Green Party, who were out to get a, a, a lot of different things. He handled it all very well. And at the end of the day, the budget came, the budget went, and there was no real controversy around it. So I'd have to score him yeah. highly for that. Very good. And he's done well. Uh, Paul, moving on to Pascal Donoghue. Um, I suppose in some ways people might be the exact best metaphor, but perhaps uh, Michael McGrath, Pascal Dunhur, the new Chuckle Brothers, they seem to get on so well. Um, he's a safe pair of hands as well, Pascal Dunhur, isn't he, Paul? Yeah, Mick, there was, a, there was a period at the start of this pandemic where towards the end of March and April, everything was kind of in flux. So you'd end up with, you'd have your, your nightly Neffet briefings, you'd have states, states of the Nation addresses from Leo Varadkar, and then on a Friday, we'd get Pascal Donoghue and it just felt like a very, very safe place to be. It was Pascal Donoghue would come out on Friday and would tell us about things on a Friday afternoon. And everyone felt a little bit kind of safer and reassured that things were being handled quite well. Um, like I said in in my summation of him, that, that budget that was delivered in October was the, the largest budget in the, in the history of the state and there was no real controversy, and that's a that's a huge, um, that that's a huge, uh, I suppose, bonus in itself. That there was no massive, uh, there was no massive balls drop because of of the size of this budget. It just felt like, yeah, it's it's being handled. You've given him a seven out of ten. 
solid, solid, safe. Uh, there, there was, I suppose, if, if you were to have a, a big criticism of the budget, you would say, look, we've spent ninety odd billion, and where you know what have we actually changed? Have we have we changed that many lives, or have we just kept the, the status quo going? I think that would be the big criticism. But I think that that's not Pascal Donahue's style. He was never going to draw up a budget that completely tore up the the fabric of what it what he'd spent the guts of 10 years helping to deliver. Yeah. Danny, the other thing about Pascal Dunhoe, I suppose, at a time when there seems to be a reconfiguration in terms of left-right to some extent in politics, he's very much articulate defender of the whole idea of centrist politics. He's been by far Mick, the most articulate and, and the most forthright art, you know, defender of, of centrist politics. I mean, his first budget as public expenditure minister, he went in and, and went heavy on this sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the Yates theme of the centre must hold, you know, the, of the second coming, you know. And um, he, for me, um, like I've been a long kind of admirer of Pascal Donoghue, I've known him since he was a Cub senator and I was a Cub reporter, you know. So, um, he, you know, he, he is someone who, you know, like it's not all positive this year. I mean, he is someone who's basically overseen the greatest negative swing in the public finances uh, in a decade because of COVID. I mean, we were, we were at the start of the year projected to have a two and a half billion euros surplus and we're now having a, a budget deficit of 25 billion plus. Now that's obviously all COVID related, et cetera, like that. Um, he's obviously been a key player in the, in the government's response to COVID-19 and, and the, the swift rollout of, you know, things like the pandemic, unemployment, you know, payments, the wage subsidy schemes, you know, and on top of that, he's gone off and gotten himself a, a very prestigious you know, job in Europe, um, which some have seen as a potential distraction at a time of crisis. And I think that's a legitimate criticism. I think we would need to see whether or not he has enough capacity in his job to, to do both roles. Um, and, you know, as, I, as I've written, you know, with Leo Varadkar's um, difficulties mounting, you know, while Simon Coveney is definitely seen as, as a front runner to replace Leo Varadkar, I think Pascal Dunhu is a very credible choice to be a future Fine Gael leader. Yeah, and you've given him a six out of ten. Yeah, no. that's, as, that's as generous as I can be, Mick. Yeah, jeez, oh, I don't know, Danny, you're, you're being a bit parsimonious there, I think, in some of them. But anyway, go on. <laughs> we'll move on to Simon Harris. And Elaine, interesting thing about Simon Harris, uh, the assessments you've done here are, are in relation to the government which was formed in June. And um, notwithstanding that, you have given them a 9 out of 10. But the only point I'm kind of making is that in the few months prior to that, I think he came into his own despite a relatively mediocre term before that but during the early phase of the pandemic I think people were very impressed with him. Yeah and when I look at my colleagues and the scores that they've given the, the ministers I feel maybe that I'm the overly generous teacher that all students wanted to have when they were in school um, but with Simon Harris I couldn't really find much fault with him this year as you said he really did play a blinder at the start of the pandemic but we have to remember now at the start of the pandemic everybody was on board the whole public uh, were so scared of this unknown virus that I think if they were asked to jump in the Liffey, they would have done it. You know, so we have to bear that in mind. It was a lot easier for Simon Harris's health minister than it possibly is for uh, Stephen Donnelly at this point in time. Having said that, though, he is even seen even now as the de facto health minister. And, you know, he's had flood of thank you cards and Christmas cards, which he's, you know, eager to show online as well. And that's part of of his personality now and and part of his success that he really has used, whether it's Instagram or, you know, uh, Facebook or whatever, 
to show the kind of human side. He's a young father with a young daughter who's incredibly cute, which also helps. Um, but also, you know, he, he, he shows off various, you know, cards and, and little presents that he's got from the public. But also, he managed to get a 250 euro bonus for each and every student um, in this country for absolutely no reason other than he felt that they deserved it at a time when Stephen Donnelly can't fix the issue of student pay for nurses and we saw how that erupted in the doll um, he managed as well to get a place for every single Leaving Cert student that was caught up in the points debacle and that seemed to be nearly solved overnight as well so he has the political will when it comes to certain issues, to get it done and get it done quickly. Um, and I think maybe that comes with a bit of experience from being in the Department of Health that he knows when he can go against his officials to make decisions that are ultimately very popular. Yeah, uh, Danny, you give him a, a 6 out of 10. But I mean, to be fair, it, it's a new department he's in and um, he seems to be doing all right there. Listen, he's doing well because he's had, like, relative to his previous role, he's got nothing to do. He's twiddling his thumbs, you know, because he's got an embryonic department with, you know, it's still only finding its feet. They still don't have a kind of a, a full staff, etc. like that. You know, there are big issues in third level um, that have to be dealt with. And he's, he's he hasn't really grasped the nettle in relation to them yet um, in terms of obviously. And the major one is funding as the, is a future funding model for third level. Um, and obviously, you know, we're seeing the the, the, the rise and the, and the continued rollout of these technological universities like um, the Munster one is, is coming on stream on January 1st. That's obviously welcome development. So I think there are tougher times ahead for Simon Simon Harris, but without question, as Elaine rightly said, he's a very effective communicator. He gives a human face to an otherwise very austere-looking government at times. Um, and, you know, he's one uh, who has proven himself to be a great survivor. I mean, he's not one to be known to be close to, to Leo Varadkar. But yet when Leo Varadkar was make, you know, making his choices for the ministerial ranks, he dumped his best mate in Owen Murphy, but kept Simon Harris in, who, you know, to say that they had their differences is, is would be putting it mildly. So yeah, a solid performance, 6 out of 10 for me, but um, I think tougher times ahead for Simon Harris without question. Yeah, I have to say personally, I find I know this is awful, but I find it difficult sometimes to see him now without thinking of the persona created by Oliver Callan, um, <laughs> of his kind of um, electro bunny kind of running around on social media, what have you, which is probably very unfair, but it, it, it is very funny. It's a quite exceptional creation. Okay, we're moving on to Catherine Martin, Tourism, Arts, Culture and Media. Paul, um, very difficult time for the arts in the pandemic, and I think she's been relatively well received there. Yeah, well, I suppose she's been re- well received by the the institutions of the arts. Um, she's been well received by, by the, I suppose, like any minister, she's been well received by the people who receive money from her. Uh, independent musicians, uh, particularly the likes of wedding bands and, and those those professional musicians who who in a normal year would be slogging it out, going from pub to pub, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They they weren't as keen on on the funding that was rolled out. The the universal um, basic income experiment w- with artists is is a very interesting thing. It's probably the the most Green Party um, policy that that has been put in place by any of the the Green Party's ministers. Um, I think yeah. Look, I think she's she's done quite well. Um, uh, kind of a kind of a steady hand in that sector. Uh, the 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 universal basic income has it has the chance has the potential to be a, a massive game changer. Um, she's probably the Green Party's best chance for bold green strokes in in the departments that they hold 
Um, just because, just because uh, it, it, we'll get to to to, to Roderick O'Gorman later, but the 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 challenge for the, for him there is going to be direct provision above all else to be judged on the green manifesto. So for Catherine Martin, she she does seem to understand the industry, which is you know which is a, a massive plus and rarer than people might think sometimes from for a minister. She really, really does understand the arts ministry. Uh, I, I think the, I suppose the other, the other things you have to look at are her, um, I suppose she's, she's overlooking the media from our point of view. We look at the, the future media commission. Um, it hasn't really been backed by, by newspapers or the NUJ. When it was announced, there was a bit of surprise that there was nobody sitting on it who represented either local or daily newspapers. Uh, if you're going to talk about the future of, of an industry, you kind of need people who understand that industry. So, yeah, I, I think she's been solid. I, I've given her a 6 out of 10, but there's still, I suppose, a lot of potential for the Greens to get caught up in in really, really anti-green votes like CEDA, like animal welfare, like uh, the Occupy Territories bill. So, yeah, I, I think steady hand, but... Aoife, she, she, um, she has that ability to think outside the box a bit, which I think is unusual enough, particularly in new ministers. Yeah, I think that's probably what I find most impressive about her is that in this government where, you know, we're in unprecedented times, she is willing think outside the box and go that wee bit further and I think for the portfolio she's in which used to be basically the portfolio of crack now it's the hardest ministry there is you know tourism hospitality first they close and last they open and the UBI was a green has been a green issue for years and was in the PFG so she managed to tick both of those off by getting the pilot scheme for the universal basic income what I also liked about her is when she first came in to the portfolio, she had two scandals with Falcha Ireland when she had the chair and another member of the board who went on foreign holidays and didn't tell her. She was incredibly open and incredibly proactive about that and um, had a meeting straight away in both instances. And in the first instance, she told the rest of the board, tell me if you have any holidays because we need to sort it out now. Uh, we know now that uh, Breach, the former CEO of Pennies, didn't tell her. Mm. And she immediately had to leave the board when it came out that she did go on holidays to Spain. And that was the end of it. We know that Leo Varag, she was dropped from a craft board and Leo Varagger secretly or quietly reinstated her and then dropped her again when the press found out. So I think, you know, she's very open and very direct. And that's what we're being told about Cabinet as well. She seems to be the voice in Cabinet who has about a sense of optics with the public, you know, when they were given pay raises for junior ministers, Catherine Martin was the first person to say, here, listen, we're in the middle of a pandemic and you're given, we're giving ourselves pay raises. Again, yeah. when there was scandal about the takeaway pints, you know, the government went on the overdrive about how we had a ban takeaway pints. And it was Catherine Martin said, are we going to now govern by tweets? Because it was all right. based on one tweet video. So I think the fact that she didn't even want to go in the negotiations for government with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and she has been this proactive and she doesn't seem to be undermining she goes along with it and despite you know the serious leadership challenges that Eamon Ryan has she seems to back him 100% there doesn't seem to be any bad blood there she doesn't brief against him or anything like that so I think for someone who wasn't sure about government and has the hardest portfolio she's done incredibly well Yeah and you've given her a 7 out of 10 Okay uh, moving on to the other Green Minister, Green Party Minister, Roderick O'Gorman, Department of Children. Danny, um, 
one noticeable thing I suppose with him was the way he handled the mother and baby homes issue suggested a bit of naivety there maybe uh, yeah, and you know, Roderick O'Gorman is a very level-headed guy, and as I've written, I'm only giving him a four out of ten. But I think you know he's endured a rocky start, but he does show an awful lot of promise. He's one who I think I may have to revise my my assessment of him. Ah, yeah, you're being, being very mean. Yeah. I'll take it there. I'm in not all fairness. I'm to not Mick. I mean, I mean the, the the mother and baby's home issue alone deserved him being docked by three points given the level of hurt anger and True. pain it, it caused an awful lot of people and the visceral response it, you know government TDs across the board were getting in relation to that issue um, w- was catastrophic he went into the doll and had to and you could see like in his body language and in his expression he didn't want to defend what he was defending and you know you could see that he was sort of you know he was doing something he wasn't comfortable with and only for you know for him to kind of um you know back down or the attorney general's advice belatedly sort of came out which said that you know um you know uh, victims and their families would essentially have access under GDPR they actually would have access to to these records that were that had been threatened you know being sealed for up to 30 years um so i think his handling of that i think he's held his hands up what i do respect about him is that he's held his hands up and he said listen i accept i, I kind of you know was I wasn't engaged enough with the stakeholder. I wasn't kind of forthcoming enough in terms of how to, to deal with it. You know, the report itself has been delayed again, obviously till the new year, which is obviously another black mark against him. But as I said, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's a very good operator. Generally speaking, I think he's shown a lot of promise. He's a solid enough head. He's not a kind of a loony lefty green that some people kind of would, would criticize some of the green parties as being. Um, so I think he has, he, she shows, he shows promise. Um, but as of now, I, I, I have to give him a four out of 10. Fair enough. Um, Moving on a small bit, because I think we have to up the pace a small bit in terms of the clock. Helen McEntee in Justice Aoife. Um, bit of an issue there around Seamus Wolf in that, definitely, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, there was um, a lot of talk about Brassneck, and I think Helen McEntee might be, you know, the number one candidate for Brassneck of the year this year. Um, she refused to come before the doll to explain to the doll, how Seamus Wolf became appointed, took two weeks of back and forward. At one point, she tried. They she tried to claim that her minister's questions would do the same thing when trying to basically tell us something that we knew wasn't true. Then she eventually came before the doll, and it turned out that her boss had coincidentally told her that he thought Seamus Wolf would be uh, a good judge. And fair enough, you know. She, I think in that stage, she wasn't going to let Fine Gael throw her under the bus, and you know, she she said that to the doll what. Leo Varadkar had told her so and then just two weeks after that she was calling for Brian Stanley to come before the doll so I just I thought that was incredibly um, brass necked of her but she got there in the end she's done good work on the image based sexual abuse bill however that was a bill originally tabled by Labour they've gotten a lot of good press for it when it was really Brandon Hoyland did a lot of the legwork and I thought the the issue now around deportations, you know, she went under the Shannon and gave a speech about a pragmatic approach, the deportation, you know, case by case and a compassionate approach. There is no compassionate approach to deporting people in a pandemic. There just isn't. So again, there's this issue of like gaslighting people by telling us something is what it is when it isn't. And I think she has done well. You know, I think it's great to have a woman in the role but I think she is allowing herself to be caught in these kind of issues with the way she she phrases things. And I think it comes across a lot of the time as politicking and people don't respond well to that. Yeah, fair point. Um, I think personally, but also to be fair, that she was absolutely in the wrong on Seamus Wolf, But nevertheless, she was also 
I got the impression taking one, taking a hit for the party, but then that's that's part of the scene. She seems to have survived it. Moving on to Norma Foley in education. Elaine, um, you've given her a 5.5. I have to say, I thought after a rocky start, she kind of grew into the role. She has grown into the role, but I'm, I'm actually looking at the 5.5 and wondering, was I... Ah, Maybe yeah. I should downgrade ah, yeah, her slightly yeah. um, because she did get off to a rocky start, but she hasn't really done much since. Um, she got a million kids back to school. That's a huge thing. Yeah, and the leaving search as well. She did, she did, but I think she's... Are you all right for sweets and chocolate? <laughs> well, this, you know, she's done minor things, like she has her, her minister's easel, which I think is just a deflection. She's asked kids to send in paintings or, or whatever they create each week, and she'll show them on her minister's easel. It's a bit of a deflection from... Uh, the actual is that issues from Simon Harris who on his birthday his cards No but but at the same time Simon Harris has also <laughs> delivered um as well as being a bit cynical with his you know online posts of cards and presents and all sorts that he receives he also does do work at the back of it and we've seen uh, some of those issues or some of those measures come to fruition with Norma you feel like she only comes out when she really has to when there is some sort of a crisis and she did get off to a very rocky start and she did recover well but I feel she's gone into hiding yet again and we haven't really seen much of her um, up until recently when her own constituency came to light for the levels of Covid in schools in Kerry um, and obviously she, she'll want to address that now over the Christmas but I feel like education is, is such a broad portfolio that you really do have a lot of scope to do well in that portfolio and perhaps she hasn't really grasped that yet. Um, so I gave her a 5.5. Maybe I might be downgrading that to maybe a 4.5 um, if I was to look at it again. Okay. Well, the only thing I'd say there, Elaine, is the, the, the COVID issue in Kerry, I think that's just one more example of how do- them up in Dublin handed out to people in Kerry in a, in, a, in, a, in a horrendous way. I think there's no question about that. Okay, we're going on to Charlie McConlogue in agriculture. Paul, um, third time lucky, is it, for an agricultural minister in this government? You would hope so. Uh, he's lasted longer than the other two, which is, I suppose, an achievement uh, in this year of all years. Uh, look, I, I think that Charlie McConlogue is one of those people who was probably in the running for, for agriculture himself. Uh, there was a I suppose when we had that that issue about geographical representation, he was one of those names that people said, "Look, it's Donegal isn't the West, but it's it's not Dublin." So you know he would have been a good uh, choice. He was the party's spokesperson on uh, on agriculture in the last all. Uh, I don't I don't think he's faced um, major challenges just yet. Uh, he's he's obviously uh, you know he spent the last two weeks on the radio and on the TV talking about about Brexit about fisheries. I think at times the message that he is being put across from those talks is that look, there's there's Irish interests being represented in a in a broader sense, but they're not at the table. Um, Irish fisher fishermen are probably bracing for for some bad news over over the next couple of weeks, and how he handles that will really tell us uh, how good he's been. I, I gave him a five. Uh, I think Danny gave him gave him a three, which. I think it is very harsh because he... Aye, I was sure that's Dan. Danny's really come down hard and all at him, like if you ask me. It's anti-Donegal bias is what it is. Ah, yeah, completely. A bit like the anti-Kerry bias, yeah, yeah. Listen, (laughs) listen, listen, I've just been, maybe I'm just so cynical. I've been around long enough. I've seen, you know, three or four governments come and go and, uh, you know, like from my my point of view, Charlie McConlogue, you know, I was in college with him, so he's the perfect opportunity for me to give a pal or someone who I was in college with, you know, a kind of a decent raising. I haven't done that. 
I think he's faced a baptism of fire, haven't gone into the position. And I think my only overriding criticism of him is that he's yet to define what sort of ministry he's going to be. So it's a it's a it's a negative mark without question. But I think you know he uh, he he's Charlie has proved me wrong in the past when I wrote about him in college. So maybe he could do it again. Okay, Danny. While we're at it, Heather Humphreys in social protection. You've given her a four out of ten. Um, she's been handing out. Money, not goodies, really. Money, because people are so in such desperate stress during the pandemic. Has she done that much wrong? Uh, I don't. No, well, she's not done that much wrong. But what has she done right? Like, I mean, I mean, there was this. Like, I mean, Seamus Brennan famously described the Department of Social Welfare as a glorified ATM machine, and that's essentially what the minister's role is. I mean, a lot of it, the department runs itself in terms of, you know, getting payments to people. Um, from, from Heather Humphreys, I mean, she she like there was that controversy at the start where she had to do a U-turn in terms of the 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 welfare payments to those who had taken holidays during the summer. That obviously was a negative mark against her. Um, but generally, she's someone who is. You know, she's relatively solid. I mean, there was a lot of criticism when she first went into the cabinet. You know, people said she wasn't really up to the job. She's grown into that stature as a minister. Um, I think her most impressive outing um, was during the uh, confidence or no confidence motion in Leo Varadkar, where she really put the boot into the into Sinn Féin. I think she was, you know, it seemed to be kind of almost instinctive as opposed to being scripted uh, in, in her performance there. Um, but again, you know, need to see a bit more from her really to, if, if she's going to improve on that mark. So I think I'm happy with the mark I gave her 4 out of 10. Okay, fair enough. And now housing. Aoife, um, Daryl O'Brien, Fianna Fáil, I think, I think a general consensus was that Michal Martin sought the housing portfolio for his party on the basis that it was so central to the election and presumably on the basis that he thought his ministers could make an impact there. Has there been much difference in Darrell O'Brien's um, stewardship of it than his predecessor in Fine Gael, uh, Owen Murphy? The first time I interviewed Darrell O'Brien, um, when he became the minister, I asked him, how are you different from Owen Murphy? And I, and I think I got a good five-minute long answer and I could actually pick out how it was in any way different. I think Dara has been lucky in the sense that they we had an election that was about housing and within two months no one was talking about housing anymore. The pandemic became the number one issue. We know that some rents have gone down or plateaued and we in certain areas and we know that housing or homelessness has gone down in certain areas because you know there's no tourism, people aren't coming to hotels, they're not coming to Airbnbs. That's not going to last forever. I thought his hesitation on outright banning co-living developments was time, precious time, lost and wasted. He eventually got there. He eventually banned them after, you know, we're a great wee country for reviews and he wanted a review. He said it was to do with, he was afraid it was going to mess up student accommodation when we all knew that there was already provisions that that wouldn't happen. There's been a few developments already approved. None have been built yet. So now they've been banned. I just thought it was a lot of bluster for something he could have done. He also laid out a plan that he wanted to get rid of. He said he wanted to get rid of height limits. That's not really how height limits work. And, you know, it's been proven that height limits aren't going to change the housing crisis. Mm. It's more expensive. When you build big, tall buildings, people don't want to live there. They're usually for offices. They're usually for hotels. And I think he betrays a lack of knowledge all the time. And I don't know whether it's he's listening to civil servants or he's listening to developers but I have yet to see any major divergence from him and Owen Murphy. Yeah, I, I just think one of the things in terms of housing, if you look, uh, the affordable housing plan was it was announced to be published within weeks of the budget. It it, it looks like it's it's going to arrive at cabinet on Tuesday, and if you look at the the, the big kind of 
measure in terms of making houses more affordable to, to first time buyers, it's going to be an equity loan. Uh, the government will take up to 30% equity in your home and kind of bridge that gap between you and affordability. But that's not really tackling the, the, the policy. Uh, it won't make houses more affordable. It won't make them cheaper to buy. It will just make people have another line of credit and that credit's going to be coming from the government purse. So the government is going to buy this, this equity. And if the house market collapses, as we know it can do, the government's going to end up in negative equity on a lot of first time buyers' homes. Um, but developers will still make the same amount of money. Now, I have no doubt that there will be mass take up of this because people are so desperate to get on the property ladder and to buy their first homes that this scheme will be will be availed of. But what will happen is in 10 or 15 years time when, when the equity on those homes matures, first time buyers now are going to be left with either less profit from their homes when they go to sell, uh, which will put moving to another home um, in in jeopardy because it'll be far more difficult because you won't be able to afford a second home because the government's going to take 30% of, of what you sell it for, or you're going to end up with people who can't pay those loans, um, who are who might who might be hit by the pandemic, the knock-on effects from the pandemic next year, and we're going to end up with a, a lot of bad loans on the state's books again. Yeah. Absolutely. There are all sorts of dangers there personally, and it's an area I keep an eye on, but I, I, in terms of attitude and in terms of showing how things are different, it'd be very simple for them to bring forward legislation, for instance, going all the way back to the Kenya report that would get rid of this notion that once you rezone land, allegedly in the public interest, the owner becomes a multimillionaire overnight because it increases exponentially in value. And we also know that land prices are one of the main determinants in the cost of housing and why it is so high. But we'll see if anything happens there. Finally, returning to Department of Health, Stephen Donnelly, Elaine, three out of ten. Yeah, and uh, I think it's important as well, before we get along to Stephen Donnelly, who I think has just has performed dismally in the Department of Health, he's really been poor on, on all sides. Um, it was really difficult, I think, and I think all my other three colleagues would say it was really difficult to score a number of ministers this year, purely because they seem to have used COVID as an excuse to hide. And pre-COVID, we would have seen ministers out and about at least once a week. There would have been doorsteps with the press and we would have been able to question them on various issues within their department and on issues of the day. We haven't had that opportunity. And I think a lot of ministers have taken advantage of that. And I'd put them in the kind of what have they done category, you know, the likes of Charlie McConnell, the likes of Heather Humphreys, Dara O'Brien, they seem to just really have not performed um, or certainly have not performed in a way that the public can see since this doll convened. But to get back to Stephen Donnelly, I feel, you know, he, he has a tough time. You know, health is the most difficult portfolio to take over. And in the midst of a pandemic, you have to give him some leeway. But he spent the summer flying kite after kite after kite around COVID and different measures that would be brought in and fines and mask wearing and all the rest. And they were shot down time and time again by cabinet as just pie in the sky ideas that were never going to go anywhere. And aside from COVID, there are always those issues. Uh, we saw it with the cervical check tribunal. You know, there's issues around uh, patients. John Wall has been campaigning for um 
critically and terminally ill patients to get medical cards. And then even things like scoliosis and children on waiting lists, they have not been addressed. And that requires political will. It requires a minister with a bit of backbone to say, officials are telling me one thing, but I'm going to make an executive decision here and I'm going to decide that the right thing to do is to not go along with my officials. And he doesn't do that. He, he toes the officials' line, he listens to his department officials and he says, sorry, can't do it. And we saw that, especially with the Cervical Check Tribunal. Um, so I scored him a three and I know some of my colleagues were a bit harsher on that as well, but I really feel that he hasn't performed this year. Okay, Elaine, thanks for that. And I think the clock is kind of catching up with us, folks, but I have to say I found that to be a very interesting insight into the performances of right across the uh, the cabinet and it'll be very interesting to see how we advance into the new year. So I'd like to thank Elaine Lachlan, Aoife Moore, Danny McConnell and Paul Hosford. Thank you all very much for that. Folks, you can read all about it in the Monday's Irish Examiner. I've uh, extended uh, read there in terms of all the performances and I have to say, having had a sneak preview, it is most certainly worth your time. Thanks also to our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you all in the new year. And after the one we've had, let's all hope that it's going to be a good one. See you soon, folks. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.